Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to various quite well-known people, well, people you might have seen on the telly, about five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. And hopefully this means we talk about things they wouldn't normally talk about. They pick four things that they cherish, but they also pick one thing that they'd like to get rid of from their past. Something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the actor Stephen Hartley, who's appeared in over 60 principal and leading roles on television and film since 1985, including EastEnders, The Bill, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, Strictly Confidential, Trial and Retribution, Holby City, Casualty, Doctors, Pie in the Sky, Miss Marple, Merlin, Married with Children, The Borgias, Vera, Ripper Street, Silent Witness, and the brilliant Happy Valley. He's appeared in films alongside such people as Catherine Zeta-Jones, Kristen Scott Thomas, Woody Harlson, John Voight, Lauren Bacall and, amazingly, Marlon Brando. Steve famously played Bill Sykes in the West End production of Oliver, directed by Sam Mendes. His voice can be heard everywhere. He's been the voice of Talk Sport for over 20 years and has voiced loads of video games such as Squadron 42, The Witcher, Hellblade and Dark Souls. Hear me say that as if I have the faintest idea what those things are? Not the foggiest. Anyway, he's got quite a deep voice, as you'll hear now. As Steve Hartley says, These are the five things I'd like to put in my time capsule. Which is lucky, because that's the title of this podcast. So this is the best place to do it, I should imagine. I mean, if you say it in the queue at Asda, people think you're mad. Anyway, have fun. As you start to think about four things you'd put in a time capsule and one you'd throw away, mm. uh, the throwaway one actually was, was fairly simple for me, but you start to look at a bigger picture. You look at those things and go, oh, yes, I will put these personal things in a time capsule. Then you suddenly go, actually, do I have a responsibility to put more far-reaching things into a time <laughs> capsule for other people's benefit? But then, after thinking about it, I then realised that, in fact, some of the things that I'm putting in the time capsule, which are personal, do have far-reaching consequences, oddly enough. Yeah. And so I thought I'd go with the ones that are personal to me, Mike. Perfect. Um, but people may listen to it and go, what? What, what is he on about? Um, <laughs> so, yes, uh, the first thing that I'm going to put in is music. And it's a Bruce Springsteen album called Born to Run. Yes. Ah, yes. 1980s? 75, actually. Was it? Yes. Oh, so, now I feel old. Well, actually, <laughs> it's interesting that you should say 1980s because Springsteen came to prominence more in the 80s. And it was the kind of bandana-wearing 
slightly muscled up Bruce Springsteen that came to prominence in the 80s. The Springsteen that did Born to Run is the slightly more leather jacketed, faded Levi motorbike boot, Dylan-esque Springsteen. So the 80s is born in the USA. It's the born in the USA, dancing in the dark, which became more commercial. And I was introduced to this in, I'm going to say, late 75, early 76. Up until this point, my musical tastes had been middle-of-the-road pop. (laughs) I had a cassette player at home and I would tape the top 20 every Sunday night. I don't know if you remember. (laughs) I do. I'd plug in my tape recorder and tape it and try and cut out the DJ (laughs) in the middle of it unsuccessfully every time. (laughs) So you never really then know how a song starts. No, exactly, because you've always missed the beginning or you lose the end of the song. So my musical taste up until this point had purely been whatever was in the top 20, really. And then I had a next-door neighbour, same age as me, called Max Dunford, who I'm proud to say is still my friend to this day, from York, which is where I grew up. And um, Max was slightly more worldly than me. And Max came round one day, banged on my door, and he's clutching a 45 single in his hand and said, uh, hey, Artley, you've got to fucking listen to this, mate. It's right up your street. (laughs) Right? And it was born to run. Mm. We went to his house because either we had a rubbish record player or my dad would have just said, turn that shit down. (laughs) Um, So we went to his house and he put it on. And it was one of those seminal moments, Mike, where you hear something and that whole guitar riff from the start of born to run, the actual single born to run, that kind of And I was just kind of like, oh, my God, what is this? (laughs) What is this? And I kind of never heard anything like it in my life. Mm. And I think I played it in his house until he kicked me out. I played it about six times. Then he went, just borrow it, you know, borrow it. (laughs) Then, of course, I saved up and went and bought the album Born to Run, which similarly had a very profound effect on me. Now... My wife, Abby, funnily enough, about six or seven months ago, said to me, what is it about this kind of American music, she said, which I don't identify with at all, which you kind of identify with so much? And what it is, Mike, is Springsteen's early songs, they are all focused on escaping from something. It is escaping from the confines of your background or culture But it's also not just ranting against it. It is escaping from it with a romance, a poetry and an optimism, (laughs) which all sit very well with me. So it is all about getting in a car with a girl and driving to Nirvana and escaping (laughs) whatever you feel is holding you back. Ah, yeah. And for me, as a boy from a working-class family in Yorkshire, it was kind of that. There is something more to this. So even though some of my friends in 1976, they got into punk, but I couldn't get to punk because I needed a bit more romance in my disaffected youth. I couldn't quite get to, no future, no future (laughs) for me. I wanted a bit more barefoot girl sitting on the hood of a Dodge drinking warm beer in the soft summer rain in my kind of, (laughs) you know, teenage angst. Yes, I was going to say to you that to discover it at that time, that was actually just at the birth of punk. And so many people went, oh, this is the stuff for me. That's right. But in fact, you wanted, well, as you say, romance. Yes. You know, we were working class Northern family and we were economically challenged, certainly for the first 10 years of my life. Mm Mm-hmm. When my father, through hard work, became more successful and we entered probably the lower middle classes, (laughs) my father still behaved as if he was a mill worker in West Yorkshire and he treated his children accordingly. You know, it was kind of like, shut up. I don't need to hear from you. Be quiet. If I said to my dad, those childhood dreams that we have of I'm going to do this and I want to do this, I'm going to do this, which I currently have my daughter telling me, My father, for whatever reasons, Mike, would tread on them. That was the deal. Don't be stupid. It was very much people like us don't do that. 
And do you think that's protective? Because quite often I think that's the reason, is that you're scared that your children are going to fail. Yes. And so, in a way, you reduce their ambition. Yes, and I think, you know, my dad had a very hard upbringing, northern working class in Shipley, a mill town. Mm. And so he never escaped. You know, when we did get a bit more money and we got a car and a TV and a record player, he was still behaving as if... We were in a coal mining town in West Yorkshire. It was, you know... <laughs> in the Victorian age. Yeah, in the Victorian age. Any minute now, you'll be in the workhouse. Yeah, yeah, and he'd go to the pub every night after work because that's what you did, you know. Mm-hmm. So he would. You couldn't go to the cinema or the theatre or a restaurant with my dad because he'd get up and leave at a certain point and go to the pub. <laughs> he would, seriously. And I was quite... I was an imaginative kid and I did have that thing of something that I want to do and I'm bigger and I can do this. And so the whole Born to Run, that Bruce Springsteen ethic of there's something bigger out there and we're running to it. You know, he has a lyric Mm. in a brilliant song called Thunder Road, which is, it's a town full of losers and we're pulling out of here to win, which Mm. I kind of, yeah, that's right. In the car with the blonde girl on your seat, drinking warm beer barefoot. (laughs) So I totally bought into that and it completely rang my bell. The thing I've always liked about Springsteen, and I'm not a great fan, I don't really know his work terribly well. No. It doesn't ring my bell. But I do like it because despite the fact that it's always, this place is not going to take me anywhere, I've got to get out of it. Yes. There's still an admiration for it, and yet it made me who I am. That sort of attitude. Yes, 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 there is. There is very much that. So you don't forget your roots. Yeah. Roots have created what you are and given you the ability to do that. Yes, also rang my bell as well. Uh, And funnily enough, so you saying that it doesn't ring your bell, my best mate, Paul Venables, he's like, Springsteen, he can take it or leave it. He's like, yeah, it's too, I can't. (laughs) I think it's too literal. You know, Paul loves a bit of prefab sprout. (laughs) But I can't do... I can't do with hot dog jumping frog Albuquerque as a lyric. I'm like, what? No, 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 no. I want a 69 Chevy with a 396 Fuley heads on and a hearse on the floor. I don't know what it means, but it sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, Mike, you know, what happened is that kind of optimism and that kind of need to escape allowed me to then make the decision indirectly to pursue the thing that I'd always wanted to do when I was a kid, but Mm. had been told, we don't do that, which was acting. You didn't lose the dream then? No. And then the dream kind of got reignited. Somebody mentioned it to me when I was 22. I I was in York sharing a flat and working for the local newspaper. And the guy I was sharing the flat with said to me, he went, do you know what? I always thought you should have been an actor. I was like... Weirdly enough, so do I. There was a huge amount of luck involved in that process of being in the right place at the right time at that moment. Because I think had I applied to the same drama school a year later, I probably wouldn't have got in. I think there was an abject shortage of northern working class blokes that year. (laughs) I think Rada had already got Sean Bean and there was an opening opening for another one. Oh, my God, ah. we're doing Saturday night, Sunday morning as the last play of the That's season. That's right. We haven't got one of them. We've got oh, to look. find one. This idiot just turned up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for spring scene. That's all I can say. Yeah, absolutely. So that's all right. We will take, I can never call it anything other than Baby We Were Born to Run. Oh, Really? Oh, because that's the chorus, baby, we were born to run. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. All right, it's playing permanently in the time capsule, and that will be your first item, Steve. Thank you very much, Sam. You're welcome. So what's number two? It's a documentary film which is called When We Were Kings, which is primarily about the rumble in the jungle, the Muhammad Ali-George Foreman fight from 1974. The documentary wasn't actually made until 1976 and was directed by a guy called Leon Gast. But the producer is a guy called Taylor Hackford, who is Helen Mirren's husband, I think, or partner, should I say. I think, yes. Now, although this is about the Muhammad Ali-George Foreman fight in 1974, it also beautifully catalogues the career of Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. In 1966, my dad went to see Muhammad Ali, then Cassius Clay, fight Henry Cooper, the British champion. Wow. Yeah, it was in Highbury, Arsenal's football ground. 
And there was a lot of hype around this fight. I suddenly saw Muhammad Ali and I had never seen a human being like this, Mike, in my life. Mm. This beautiful, tall, handsome, athletic, charismatic person who is walking around saying all these things that as a child I wanted to say, I'm the greatest, I'm the best, I can do this, I can do that. And I was just absolutely transfixed by this person with this beautiful mischief and amusement in his eyes at all time, which was just full of life. You know, I'm the greatest thing you've ever seen in your life. You ain't never seen nothing like me. And indeed, you know, certainly I hadn't. And I don't think Britain had. But I remember my dad kind of, my dad was saying, oh, Henry Cooper's going to knock his block off. And I, I remember <laughs> I remember looking at Henry Cooper, which greatest respect to Henry, who he was bald and slightly pasty looking, and then looking at this kind of, this god, and going, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think so, Dad. <laughs> you know, like, and yet Henry Cooper did knock him down. We did knock him like, down, absolutely. At you that know. point, I don't think anybody had done it. One guy had done it, a guy called Sonny Banks had done it in, uh, in about yeah. 1963, I think. Um, but yes, so I then proceeded to follow Muhammad Ali's, Cassius Clay's career mm. avidly as a child and all his fights and everything that was written about him. Then when they stripped him of his title because he wouldn't go to Vietnam and said, no, you know, my fight is at home here against racism. My fight is not with the Viet Cong. All of that stuff is catalogued in this documentary really well. And then on top of that, when Ali makes the comeback after being imprisoned and banned from boxing for three and a half years and all those things that happened because he wouldn't be told what to do by the man. Mm. You suddenly saw that this person who gave up everything he had. For a principle, that's the amazing thing. Absolutely. And I found that completely just remarkable. Mm. Then, of course, he came back and then he lost to Joe Frazier. But then he had that amazing fight because George Foreman then demolished Joe Frazier and everybody else around and then Ali had to fight Foreman. And by that time, Ali was perceived to be over the hill mm. in 1974 because he was 32, 33 years old. And Foreman was a monster. Mm. And the way that fight plays out is probably the most remarkable fight in boxing history. And it's catalogued beautifully in this documentary. It, it shows the contradictions in Ali, the frailties, but it also shows the poetry of that beautiful athleticism and the intelligence. But the documentary is a fascinating cultural documentary about America, about the uh, civil rights movement in America, and then coupled to the fact that they wanted this fight to take place in Africa, because Ali said, that's, you know, that's where George, George Foreman and I are two black men, and we're going to want to go fight in Africa, mate. That's what we're going to do, and, you know, in Zaire. And strangely enough, the president of Zaire is going to pay me a lot of money to go. A lot of money, and also, strangely enough, the president of Zaire has been killing his own people for his own profit for a lot of money. Yep. You've got to go, hang on, this is Mobutu we're dealing with here. Mm. Um, but as a cultural documentary and also just documenting Muhammad Ali's legacy and particularly that fight, the way that fight plays out. I just feel it's a remarkable document of its time, this film. You know, you have brilliant people such as George Plimpton and Norman Mailer, writers, who are talking and voicing it throughout the film. And Mailer particularly is just fantastically incisive about the, the, the kind of legacy of Ali and that fight in particular. Mm. And I think... I remember going to bed, I was 14 years old, and I remember going to bed that night and fearing for Ali's life against Foreman, which I think most people did. Yeah. Because this wasn't the kind of fat, bald George Foreman who's been selling a grill on television. Uh, no. This was a monster of a human being, the hardest-hitting heavyweight that anyone had seen. Yeah, those scenes from Rocky where he punches the carcass of a cow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Foreman had done that, hadn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like that. He was that kind of guy. He was a new breed of heavyweight. He was like mm. six foot four, six foot five, 17 stone. Yeah, with about three inches extra reach. Yeah, and Ali was six foot three, 15 stone. He, mm. You know, Foreman was the new breed of monster heavyweight that we now know, like the Lennox Lewis's, these guys who are massive, yeah, um, but still remarkably athletic. And, you know, I feared for Ali's life. And then 
You know, Muhammad Ali then did the complete opposite in the ring of what everybody thought he should do and was going to do. In the first round, you can hear the commentators and people at ringside screaming because they thought he was going to get killed. And it's remarkable. You know, and Foreman contributes to the documentary as well. And he says, I was really confused because suddenly this guy did the opposite he would always dance, wouldn't he? He would dance and he and would he, move. That's right. And he didn't. He took the punches. Yes. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And Foreman himself says, you know, I hit Ali so hard that it would have cut most men in half. I'd never hit anybody this hard. And Ali stood there and smiled and went, is that all you've got, George? <laughs> in the first round. Is oh, that it? my word. Is that it, George? Is that what you've got? And George was... Just going, this isn't supposed to, this is. This doesn't play out like this. But it went on like that for round after round. After round after round, until round eight, when suddenly Foreman just ran out of gas. Yeah, and that's what he was waiting for. He's standing there pawing, and then suddenly Ali comes off the ropes with this phenomenal speed mm. and just goes, bah, 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 and it's done. And you're kind mm. of like, oh, my God. I cried when I woke up the next morning and heard the result. I woke up at four o'clock and turned the radio on and went into my mum and dad's bedroom crying, saying that he had defeated George Foreman, to which my father was saying, you must have heard it wrong. You couldn't see the footage, could you? No, you couldn't. They'd shown it live. Yeah. That's it. That's right, in those days. And it is the most remarkable display of athleticism and fearlessness that I've ever seen. And in fact, fearlessness is probably the wrong word because there is a section in the film where after the first round, where basically Ali has tried every trick in the book and he goes back to his corner and he realises for the first time that he's come up against someone who's bigger, stronger, younger, faster and isn't scared. Mm. And they zoom in on Ali and he's talking to himself, nodding to himself, and he starts to say to himself, get it together, get it together, get it together. It's really interesting. You can see in his eyes he's frightened that he's not sure what to do. And then he starts to convince himself. And then all of a sudden, puts his hands up and starts to direct the crowd singing, Ali, Boumaye. It's really interesting. But it does make you cry, doesn't it? Makes you cry. It's an extraordinary thing to watch. You use the word God. He was, yes. I think, where even the fantastic power and dignity of him Absolutely. in later life when he was very ill, Absolutely. him carrying the Olympic torch in America is one of the most moving things. Yes. And, you know, let's not... The, the, the illness that he had was directly related to boxing. People say, oh, it was Parkinson's disease. It wasn't. It was Parkinson's syndrome, which was brought on by blows to the head. Yeah. Because they had him boxing way past he ever... Sh- because he was a gravy train, you know, and earning millions for a lot of people. There was a point where they were wheeling him into the ring to fight people. He shouldn't have been crossing the road, never mind about fighting people in a ring. No. And sadly, he'd shown that he could take it. He'd shown that he could take it and then continued to do so. I mean, oddly enough, you probably don't know this, but the personal physician that he had, a guy called Ferdy Pacheco, had been with him since a te- he was a teenager, since he started boxing at the, as a pro when he was like 19. He quit after the Manila fight with Frazier. He said, that's it, this show's over. He said, this guy shouldn't be fighting anymore. And he carried on fighting for another load of years. And Ferdy Pacheco said, no, we got a medical report from the Mayo Clinic that basically said, this guy shouldn't be going anywhere near a boxing ring. Because at that time, Ali's cognitive powers, he couldn't even touch his, do that. Sorry, I'm I'm doing this. That's all right. We can see each other. Yeah, we can see that. <laughs> what I'm doing, what I'm doing. I listeners. don't think you should tell him. It was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm putting my finger to my nose. He couldn't even touch his nose with his finger. Anyway, you're yes. right. What a great documentary. That's it's extraordinary that they would have started filming that, as you say, almost with certain knowledge that they were filming the end of a career. Absolutely. And they didn't. And they didn't. They saw the most remarkable victory ever. Yeah, and also given what's going on at the moment, Mike, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and where players have been racially abused. Yeah. Anybody should watch that documentary just to see what that guy did in the 60s 
And I do remember him coming to Britain quite often, being interviewed by people and saying that he liked coming to Britain because people didn't call him boy. Extraordinary. So he's talking about this country as being open and not racist and you know, accepting of black people. Yeah. And yet still, now, after all this time, we have this shit. We have this shit. I know. As a kid, an English kid growing up, it was beyond my comprehension that Muhammad Ali couldn't go into a restaurant in Kentucky. Crazy. Which he couldn't. You know, he came back from the Rome Olympics after winning a gold medal from America. Him and his mate go for a cup of coffee and they went, sorry, we don't serve black people in here. Yeah. And he went, well, what's this gold medal for then? What a waste of time that is, you know. Yeah. Amazing. But so, as I said, the film for me is personal, but I think overall it has a far... The tentacles come out further, I think, in terms of our social history. and Yes, it's something we should all see. Yeah. It is a fantastic documentary. It is. So we should put When We Were Kings... Absolutely. ..into the time capsule. That's your second item. OK, lovely. Right, let's move on to number three. I'm really enjoying this. Oh, good. I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> OK, we're going to take a short advertising break here, but we'll be back with you very soon. Thanks. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Let's discover what else Stephen Hartley would like to preserve in his time capsule. So, right, this is a weird one. I'm putting the city of Los Angeles in my time capsule. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. Just a- kind of weird one it is weird because actually if you said great cities of the world which would you pick that wouldn't be on many people's lists no it's not the most aesthetically pleasing city in the world uh i don't know how much time you've spent there mike but as little as possible yeah 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 so i'm going to explain this to you so yes places i've been in the world possibly one of the least pleasing places in the world compared to you know, Rome or Florence or New York or Paris or, Mm -hmm. I mean, in fact, in terms of its building and its architecture, you know, it's got the odd amazing art deco building, but certainly you're not going to Los Angeles to see the sites. It's got a Um, beach. That's about all I'd say in its way. Yeah, it's kind of that. And it's, I mean, it was built for the car. Los Angeles, I love going to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I think a part of it is to do with being an actor, I suspect, But whenever I go to Los Angeles, it feels optimistic. It feels like there is space. I love the fact the sun is always shining. (laughs) And I love that there seems to be a can-do attitude and an optimism there, which I don't find anywhere else in the world in the same way. I think a lot of it is probably slightly forced optimism and probably slightly dishonest. But I don't mind a bit of that. I kind of go, (laughs) I'd much rather someone was saying to me, yes, Steve, you're fantastic. We're definitely going to put you in this movie and then probably doesn't (laughs) than going into a kind of tiny little place in London auditioning for someone. Well, basically people say, 
you want to be in films? Yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. But so I first went to Los Angeles in 1989. I got asked to shoot a commercial in Arizona and I got played quite well for it. And I'd just done two and a half years on EastEnders. So when I came out of EastEnders, I was slightly typecast and I wasn't getting work in this country. There was very much a, oh, he's a soap actor. There was a bit of that going on. And just thought, ah, I think I might go and have a trip to Los Angeles then and let's see what that's all about. And when I arrived in Los Angeles, there was just something that appealed to me. And I think it is the fact that everybody was so optimistic (laughs) and so nice. (laughs) I had the best time because I basically then managed to totally live my Bruce Springsteen dream in Los Angeles. <laughs> I got myself a Mustang. Oh. I did the dream. I got, <laughs> so I went to this place called Rent-A-Wreck, which is on Olympic Boulevard. And it's where virtually every impoverished actor that had ever come to Los Angeles goes and rents a car. The first thing the guy said to me when I was in there, he went, you're an actor, right? And I was like, yeah, he goes, <laughs> yeah. He said, Pierce Brosnan rented from us not long ago. <laughs> I'm like, all right, okay then. And I got this Mustang, which was a wreck, Mike, but it looked so cool. I've got long hair down here, a white T-shirt on, faded <laughs> Levi's and a pair of boots. Oh. And I just had the best time. I had the best time. And then weirdly, I'm driving down Sunset Boulevard in this Mustang, thinking to myself... Guy, this is fantastic. <laughs> and um, I bumped into, weirdly enough, I, I bumped into an ex-girlfriend in Los Angeles and she was with me in the car. And as we pulled up at a traffic light, she said, there is a weird guy in an old Volvo keeps staring at us. Anyway, I kind of glanced across and I saw this bearded, long-haired guy in this Volvo. And then all of a sudden he said, uh, this voice shouted, Stephen Hartley? And I went, yeah, and he went, God damn, it's me. It's Andy Lamond. And I, it was a guy I'd been at college with at Lambda. He said, pull over, man, pull over. So <laughs> I pull over. He was like, what the fuck? And in that typical Californian, Los Angeles way, he went to me, where are you staying? And I, I was staying in this little, you could get these long-term rented apartments in a place called, there was one place called The Magic and another place called The Highland Gardens, which is where all the impoverished actors stay when they first turn up in Hollywood. And I said, I'm staying at The Magic. And he went, fuck that, come and stay with me and my buddy Henry. And so I moved in with Andy and Henry and they were native Californians and they took me around Los Angeles. But also, Mike, I was being, you know, my agent, I was with ICM. So I was going up for big movies. I was breathing rarefied air as an actor. I auditioned for like Rocky IV. I met Stallone. Now, in retrospect, I I didn't realise how lucky I was at that point in my career to be doing what I was doing. I mean, we worked together as young actors. Yeah. And I always thought that was where you were destined to go. To me, it it seemed fucking obvious. I can't believe you came back. Well, I don't think, to be honest with you, if I look back, I didn't take it as seriously as I probably could have done. I was taking it, I took it as, yeah, well, this is what happens. And I was just rocking up to screen tests, kind of in the Mustang with the T-shirt on and the hair blowing in the wind. And, you know, I don't think I gave it the seriousness it deserved. And then I had to come back because property had crashed in the UK, 1989, 1990. Suddenly my mortgage was seven times what it had been when I left. God, yes. There's something for people to bear in mind at the moment. Yeah. The mortgage rates had gone up to like 21% from seven in the space of like a year. Don't. There are people in their 30s having heart attacks. I know. So anyway, I remember Andy taking me to, he said, uh, come on, we're going to a ball game. And we went to see a football game, a USC football game. And it was at the Coliseum. You know, it was fantastic. And it was like 80,000 people watching a college ball game and the sun was shining and you could sit and have a beer and walk around and it was fantastic. But also, I have in Los Angeles some of my closest friends. So Andy Lamond, this guy and his family, my buddy Alexis Denisov, who was an actor, who is a big mate of Tony Head, oddly enough. He's big friends with Tony Head. And whenever I go... 
I have the best time. And myself and Abby and Tess went there 18 months ago and we were there for a month. Then one day we were driving from Malibu to go and see uh, my friend Andy in Santa Monica and we're driving down the PCH and Tess is in the back of the car and Abby said, we need some music, don't we, for this. We're driving down the coast. The Pacific was on the on the right-hand side. And I said, yeah, we do. And we put the Eagles on. And Abby and I are having this moment. And all I can hear in the back is Tess going, what is this? Dad, <laughs> can you put Taylor Swift on? <laughs> and we're, Abby and I are trying to have a Hotel California moment. <laughs> but the other thing that was really weird is Tess, for the whole time we were there, all Tess did, Mike, was speak in a Californian Disney accent. <laughs> they didn't want to let us through customs because from the minute we got off the plane, suddenly Tess started to talk like this all the time. <laughs> oh, hey. And, you know, at customs, they're like, so, wait, you, you two are from England, but your daughter's from California. And we're like, no, no, she's English. And Tess is like, yeah, we're here in Hollywood. <laughs> well, it's never too late, Steve. I still think... Somebody will cast you in one of those great American series. And, of course, they'll end up filming it in Hull. I know. <laughs> but so, yes, Mike, I would put Los Angeles in because it appeals to my optimism. It appeals to that sense of, oh, can do to me. And I, I always feel a sense of freedom when I'm there. It absolutely kicks into my sense of romance, of, of, of life. Well, you said at the beginning, I wonder if the things I put in there will give people an idea of who I am. Yes. And, and so, I think they very much are. Yeah. So let's find out what number four is. Okay, I've got two things here. I love cooking and I love food and I love Italian food. And I thought about putting that in. But then I also uh, have a thing that is very dear to my heart, which is when my daughter was born, I, I did children quite, I mean, I, I had my daughter quite late. So I was like 51 <laughs> when I had tests. Did you have kids when we worked together? Yes. You did, didn't you? Yeah. That's right. That's why I just thought. So we're talking, we worked together in like 84, 85. Yeah. I My think. daughter was born in 82. Exactly. So, so I kind of, I mean, I cannot even tell you how far away I was having from having children in 1985, <laughs> mate. Oh, I was well aware of that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I bet you were. And uh, I had tests when I was 51 which, you know, is a very, very different thing to having them when you're in your mid-20s or late-20s like you did. Yeah. Mid-20s, I'm guessing. Well, yes, early 20s. Early 20s. So I'm like, wow, you know. <laughs> uh, and so my friend Alexis Denisoff, who lives in the States, mm. sent us a book which is called The First 1,000 Days. And he'd already had his... He'd just had a daughter the year before. And basically... It is a book and you write the first 1,000 days, you write a diary of your child's progression every uh, day. All those memories of, okay, they, that's when they first smiled, that's when they first spoke, their first word was, and all those things. And we kind of did that, Abby and I, we were pretty good with it. But one of the biggest joys of my life has been the conversations that I've had with Tess over the years. So I started to do this little blog called The World According to Tess, which I started when she was three. <laughs> and uh, they've become less and less now because, in fact, obviously she's grown up, so they are not as random as they used to be. But <laughs> I, so I, I then what I did, I produced last year a book. I got all those conversations. I got them off the blog on Facebook and wherever else I'd done them. And I created a book, which I then got illustrated which I gave to Abby and Tess, oh. and it's called The World According to Tess. And I'm going to put that in the time capsule instead of Italian food because it gives me such pleasure to look back on those. No matter what is going on in my life, Mike, there is never a day goes by where Tess does not make me smile at some point. Mm -hmm. She brings a smile to my face and makes me laugh. It doesn't matter if the rest of the world is falling apart. That has been the gift. You know, there is all the worry and the things that you have about children and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the worry you have about their future, the da -da -da -da, and you worry about them every day. But every single day of my life, it makes me smile. And that book is just a treasured possession. And I'm going to give you an example. Of, oh, yeah, do. As I said, I started when she was three. 
So this one is when she was three years and six months. This particular little conversation takes place in the car on her way to nursery at 8.45 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> and she said, Dad, I'm a bit worried. And I said, OK, uh, what are you worried about? And she said, Dad, actually, I'm really worried. And I said, well, there's no need to be worried. What is it you're worried about? And she said, my powers. <laughs> and I said, what? And she said, my powers, Dad. I'm just worrying about them, that's all. And I said, OK, can I help? And she went, no, you don't have powers. Oh, that is brilliant. Oh, I've got a grandson of four, and they're absolutely certain of these things. And I do feed that imagination quite often. Yeah, me too. Yeah, oh, I loved it. I've always loved it. There's a sandpit in the local park, and uh, my grandson always says, can I buy a magazine? And I say, well, I haven't got any money. And he said, it's all right. I'll use my powers in the sandpit to find some. That's right. And, of course, he does. It's fantastic. Go on, give me some more. Give me some more. So there's one here, which was three years and six months, and we're in the kitchen, and it's 6.30 a.m. So we're kind of breakfasting and preparing for the day. And I've said, Tess, silence. Tess, Tess, are you listening? And then finally she says, yup. I said, I'm going to work in a minute. When I come back, and she went, work? Talking. <laughs> and I said, kind of, yes, acting. And she went, that's talking. And I said, yes. <laughs> anyway, when I come back, I'm going to make cauliflower cheese for tea. Would that be nice? She said, I like pasta pesto. I said, yes, but I thought cauliflower cheese might be nice. Oh, okay. I said, what would you like with it? Some broccoli or green beans? Honey. <laughs> I said, what? She said, honey. I said, Honey with cauliflower cheese. You can't really have honey with it. And she went, why not? I like honey. <laughs> That's it. It's true. Yeah, it's true. Uh, so you didn't do what your dad did, which is don't be daft. Yeah, of course not. We all kind of try and do that, don't we, Mike? It's that thing of you look back and go, okay, well, how was that for me? Okay, I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. Look, here's one. This is when she was seven, Mike. We were in the Museum of London. They've got a Victorian street in the Museum of London. And we're walking around this Victorian street. I said... Tess, this is a Victorian street. And she went, when our house was built? And I went, yup. And she went, Dad, Dad, look at that bike. I said, it's called a penny farthing. She went, look at the size of the wheel. I went, I know. And she said, is that what bikes were like when you were little? <laughs> How did you get on it, Dad? That's what she said. <laughs> so, yes, I did this book, Mike, and it is one of my most valued possessions. Mm. Every morning... I hear the kids walk past our house going to the various schools mm. and I hear these conversations and this laughing or shouting or giggling and there is no better sound in the world than that. It's fantastic. Mm. I do wonder sometimes, it's is it because I came to it later that I came to fatherhood later or whether or not it would have been the same had I been like you to any... Yeah, no, I think it's whatever. in your nature. I think it's in your nature. Some people never lose the wonder of it. Yeah. And other people never have that wonder. They find it annoying, which is weird, you know. Well, that's funny you should say that because there is a, a neighbourhood blog thing that goes on. There was one the other day and it said, I'm a worker uh, and I work nights. And every morning I get woken up by the sound of bloody kids <laughs> coming past my, oh, my bedroom window going to school. <laughs> And laughing and shouting, please, could you keep your kids quiet on the way to school and have some respect for workers who are working late at night? And I'm just like, what planet are you on? <laughs> so I would put my book, which is called The World According to Tess, into my time capsule. My and is that available or is that just you're the only one? No, I just made it for us, actually. Um, uh, publish it. Publish it. Well, no need to. People will find it in the time capsule and everybody will fall in love with that. Yes, they will. Yeah. Okay, we've got one item left and this is the thing you want to get rid of. Yeah, the thing I want to get rid of is I would get rid of a packet of cigarettes, which overall means cigarettes. Now, this is bittersweet for me, Mike, because mm. <laughs> uh, uh, I was a smoker. I don't smoke anymore, but I was a smoker and I have to say... I miss smoking. I cannot deny that. But having said that, I hate smoking because I miss smoking. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, uh, mum and dad indirectly, my parents died indirectly, definitely from smoking. And yet, 
I wake up every morning and with my cup of coffee, I would like to go and sit on the patio and smoke a cigarette with my cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. I stopped smoking uh, like five, six years ago, even though probably for the six or seven years previous to that, I'd been smoking a minimal amount. Mm. But nevertheless, I could see what it had taken away from me when I stopped smoking. Mm. But yet, I still enjoy smoking and still to this day, every day go, I would really like a cigarette. We were on holiday in France last year. I think, you know, I don't drink either. But every morning I'd get up to go and get bread in this village of France and they're just sitting there with a glass of red wine at 8am and a gall one. I'm like, oh, you bastard! (laughs) That's everything I want to do! But out of responsibility to myself, my family and my child, I better not. Oh, my word. It's such a powerful thing, isn't it? It really is. I know exactly what you're talking about, Steve, because I am an ex-smoker. Yeah. And I still, every now and again, I walked into the garden the other day and I went into a complete panic because I realised there was something very important I'd forgotten to do and I couldn't remember what it was. And I thought, oh, my God, what is it? Oh, no, I must do it. I really must and I can't remember what it is. And oh, I haven't brought my cigarettes with me. Yeah, that's right. And I hadn't brought my cigarettes with me for years. Isn't it strange? So Weird. So the reason I want to put cigarettes in is because it is that bittersweet thing for me where I want to smoke, but it would have eventually got me. I got pneumonia uh, five or six years ago. I wouldn't have had new, and I got pleurisy because wow. I ignored the pneumonia. And in fact, it could have killed me. It started off, all I had was a cold, mm. but I was smoking, I was working, I was stressed, and it turned into pneumonia, which I ignored. I didn't know it was pneumonia. I just thought it was a heavy cold. Mm. So I carried on having the odd cigarette, carried on working, being stressed. Suddenly, one night, I wake up, and I think I'm having a heart attack, and I thought I was going to die. And it was pleurisy. It turned to pleurisy. So I end up being hospitalised. And, of course, you know, the doctor said, do you smoke? And I said, well, yeah, I have the odd one. And he went, not anymore, you don't. Mm -hmm. He said, you've got a weak left lung, you know, and that's from that. Uh, I grew up in a smoking household in the 60s. Everybody smoked. Mum and dad smoked. I didn't even start till I got to drama school, really, at 21, 22. I dabbled with the odd one. But also because I was a boxer, you know, I'd been boxing from a young age until I was 19, 20. I didn't smoke. So when I was into when I got to drama school and I decided that I was Marlon Brando, you know, <laughs> well, you had to smoke. I had to smoke. Yeah. You know, there was no not smoking. <laughs> there was no way I could be an actor and not have a fag hanging out of my mouth. Oh. Very rarely do I, I it doesn't bother me that I don't drink. I don't wake up going I'd really like to have a pint of beer right now. Mm. But I do wake up going I'd really like to have a Marlboro now with this coffee. <laughs> It's a weird aberration as well in the human race. We sort of discovered it. The turn of the century, people started smoking cigarettes. And hopefully by the middle of the 21st century, nobody will. I would hope so. I always wish it wasn't there as an addictive thing for me. Mm. You know, ultimately, it would have probably killed me early or certainly it would have debilitated me quite severely, which it did with my mum and my dad indirectly. Um, you know, because both of them got cancer, both of them were heavy smokers, and uh, although they got different kinds of cancer, both of them could be tracked back to to smoking sixty a day, which my dad was doing. How do you smoke sixty cigarettes a day? <laughs> you don't stop. <laughs> you don't stop. That's the deal. And uh, so that has to go in the bin for me, Mike. Yeah. I do still chew the odd bit of nicorette gum. Still need a buzz. Yeah, I still need a little bit of a buzz in the morning after the coffee. And Abby sometimes says to me, all you've had so far this morning is a cafetiere of ridiculously strong coffee and a nicorette gum. No wonder you still look like you did when you were 25. I know. Your whole time capsule, as you said right at the beginning, you said this is a very personal thing, but I hope that other people can look at it and then it will mean something to them. And I think it really does. I think the whole thing does. Yes. You suddenly discover that those personal things... I've got to tell you this because it's actually quite funny. <laughs> I took my mate Mark Winger to see Bruce Springsteen with me at Wembley about, uh, uh, it was about three years ago. And he took a selfie of him and I at Wembley Stadium watching Springsteen. And then he put the selfie on social media. 
what was really funny about the selfie is is that behind us all there was was a sea of middle-aged denim-clad white men. (laughs) Just a sea of balding, slightly overweight men wearing denim. (laughs) And all singing, baby, we were born to limp. Yeah, exactly. Steve, thanks so much for doing this. It's been lovely to talk to you. It's been great fun. Thank you. I have to say, your podcast, dude, I'm in some exalted (laughs) company. Yeah, well, you know, I'll get some shit people on soon. (laughs) (laughs) You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Stephen Hartley. Okay, before I go, here's the traditional technical information bit that I know you all so enjoy. Nobody skips through this bit, obviously. Anyway, it's a sort of small print for this podcast. Right, one, you can subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider. Two, you can follow My Time Capsule on me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Three, you can listen to the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify. Four, this was a cast-off production produced by John Fenton Stevens. And five, this program may contain nuts. Well, one at least. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.